It's Philosophy Talk. We like to call this the catch-22 of virtual reality. On the one hand, anyone can do whatever they want beyond our wildest dreams. On the other hand, we're programmed biologically just treat it as real. I think, therefore, I am a virtual self. I can build a version of you that looks just like you. Why settle for your boring old real-world identity? We can change our height. We can change our weight. We can change uh, the way that our faces look. We can change uh, our patterns of speech. We can project an optimal self. Will virtual reality someday supplant real reality? Our guest is Jeremy Balenson, director of Stanford's Virtual Human Interaction Lab. Humans have not evolved to differentiate virtual things from real things, to think that fake people aren't people. Digital selves, avatars, second life, and virtual reality. Coming up on Philosophy Talk, after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Today, we've taken Philosophy Talk just down the road. We're recording the program in front of a live audience at the Marsh, San Francisco's breeding ground for new performance. Our thinking originated at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, but we're really excited to be here at the Marsh in San Francisco and meet in person some of our listeners who live right here. Welcome to Philosophy Talks. Our topic today is digital selves, avatars, second life, and virtual reality. Now, Ken, a, a digital self isn't a person made out of numbers or fingers, you know. It's a computerized representation of a person. It can be a VRS, a virtual representation of self, or a VRO, a virtual representation of another person. Okay, so let me see if I've got this straight. Uh, so you've got me. I'm a real person. And then there are representations of me. Uh, my name in the paper, my image in a mirror, the picture of me on our, uh, on our website, or even my idea of myself in my own head, or, or maybe your idea of me in, in your head. That's right. My idea of you is a VRO, and my idea of me is a VRS. I mean, I see my name in the phone book or in the Stanford catalog. I hear myself talking when I listen to philosophy talk. I see myself or a representation of myself when I watch a video of my grandchild's last birthday party. I can see myself in the mirror. And in all those ways, uh, you know, I can also have representations of others. So now, but here's, here's a question. Now, what's special about the digital representations? Well, lots of things. Now, for one thing, given today's technology, they can be very lifelike. If you go into Jeremy Balenson's virtual reality lab at Stanford and put on some goggles, you can meet people that look and talk pretty much like real people, although they are actually just digital representations. Right, and then you can also have like avatars, and that's a representation of a real person that appears in these immersive communities and games and stuff like Second Life or, and interacts with other avatars. Right, and, and all the digital representations we've mentioned have something very important in common. They can be programmed to behave. They don't just sit there and smile back at you like yourself in a mirror. They can be programmed to behave in what seems like a sort of autonomous way. So they're not like a photo or a video recording or much less like a piece of language like my name in a book. I can set up my avatar to be me, but be a different me, to be less responsible than I am, 
to live a wilder virtual life than I would dare live in real life? Yeah, you know, this is, that's, that's all pretty exciting stuff, especially the part about a less responsible you. I, well, I'm not <laughs> sure that's, that's possible, John, but <laughs> <laughs> this is all exciting and cool. And, but what's philosophical about it? What's it got to do with philosophy? Well, one interesting thing is what virtual reality experiments can tell us about belief, perception, and emotion and how they interact. When you enter a virtual world voluntarily, like Balenson's lab, you know that you're in a plain old room without a bottomless pit to fall into, snakes to attack you, or other persons to bump into. But when he creates these virtual representations in your mind through these goggles, these beliefs about what the world you're in is really like don't block your emotional and visceral reactions to the virtual world. You're scared of stepping into the bottom of split in the virtual room, even though you feel a solid floor beneath your feet. I guess that's why they're immersive, right? You're totally immersed in this other reality. And I, I guess another thing is this. It all seems to hold promise for, you know, something deeply philosophical. Philosophical thought experiments might actually come true. I mean, how do I know whether I'm Ken Taylor at the Marsh or Ken Taylor w with goggles, maybe goggles so small I can't feel them, in a virtual marsh. I mean, Descartes would have loved it, man. We could prove the existence of a virtual god, or at least a, a beneficent webmaster. Well, and, and, and the deepest philosophical question of all, how much would it matter? If the interplay of representations in your mind is, is, makes you happy, does it matter if they're caused by a real world or not? Is reality that important? Luckily, you know, we have the very man whose lab you mentioned, Jeremy Balenson, director of the Human Virtual Interaction Lab at Stanford, to help us think through some of these uh, thorny philosophical issues. Here's the plan. We'll begin by discussing some interesting properties of virtual environments, especially what the, what the researchers in that area call presence. Now, they don't mean Christmas presence. They mean, like, presence in the sense that something's present that when you're in this room with these virtual images, you feel like real things are present with you. That's what Heidegger called Dasein, being exactly. there. Then we'll consider the nature of social interactions in virtual reality and how they can influence social interactions in real life. Finally, we'll consider some applications of virtual reality in the physical world. It can change our lives, but for the better or for the worse. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Zoe Corneli, takes us on a real-world tour of a virtual reality lab. She files this report. I wanted to experience virtual reality firsthand to see just how real it is. So I headed down to the Virtual Human Interaction Lab at Stanford University, run by Jeremy Balenson. Hi, good to meet you. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for having us down here today. Thank you. Thanks for coming. So what exactly is it that you guys do here? What we do is we build immersive virtual reality simulations, which are digital worlds that perceptually envelop a user. Uh, we then take people, put them inside of VR, and experiment on how their identity changes, how social interaction changes, basically how the human condition changes when you're virtual compared to when you're physical. So can you tell me an interesting example of how an experience of virtual reality could change real reality? Uh, I think you're about to see uh, some very compelling examples of the idea we call presence, which is feeling like you're in a virtual space and forgetting you're in a physical space. We say uh, VR demos like a thousand pictures, so I think you're about to see firsthand uh, how you can confuse the real with the virtual. Graduate student Catherine Segovia shows me what they call the head-mounted display, a hefty set of goggles perched on a styrofoam head. 
A small blue light extends from the top like the lure of a deep-sea anglerfish. This is the light that it tracks. It tracks the user on an X, a Y, and then a Z plane so that we can track your movement and every movement that you make. So can I try it on? Yes, of course. <laughs> I step into a big, dark, empty room. This is where I'll experience the virtual world. A camera in each of the four corners will track my movements, and the computer will adjust what I see accordingly. Undergraduate Nicole Fernandez explains the world I'm about to enter. Uh, in your virtual world, you'll be in the lab office, but in the middle of the office on the floor, there's going to be a huge pit with a plank overlooking it. Oh, no! And your job is to cross the plank, and the purpose of this uh, demo is supposed to possibly help people who have fears of heights and things like that. And oh, what about people who don't have fears of heights but are about to get one? <laughs> That's uh, right. Well, you um, are in the room now. Oh, wow, it looks pretty real. If you Suddenly, look- I'm in a lighter, crisper version of the office. There are photos on the walls. The surfaces have realistic textures. Then I look down. Oh, my God. <laughs> if, you look the, if you look to the door again, you'll see avatars come in. Oh, are they nice? People march into the room periodically and jump directly into the pit where they land with a splat. Oh my god! And this is supposed to make me less scared? (laughs) This is supposed to get you more immersed into the world. Okay, so I'm supposed to walk across this? Mm -hmm. That's correct. I'm scared. Okay. (laughs) I start to walk across. It's a bit odd that I can't feel the plank under my feet. But somehow, I'm still scared of falling off. scary, scary, scary. Here I go. It looks like I've just about made it across when... Whoa! I fell! (laughs) (laughs) Luckily, you can start again. This time, I take very small steps and make it across. Woo! I did it! Yeah! (laughs) Yeah, take that. (laughs) Okay. Coming out of the virtual world, I feel a little queasy. Fortunately, the lab has ginger ale available for moments like these. Virtual reality felt real enough, but it's nice to be back in the world I'm used to. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Zoe Corneli. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.